Lord, we pray tonight, corporately agree over the word of God right now. Lord, I pray that there be an awesome anointing on your word as it goes forth, and that it would um, go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do as you promised it would. You said it would not return void. And Lord, we ask you that the glory of God would be thick over this time of the word, that even as I'm speaking, there will be an impartation, not only of truth, but of the anointing, the power to confirm the word. Lord, we ask you that the light of truth will shine forth and dispel any darkness or deception of any kind and replace it with truth. We ask you to take your sword and cut away what needs to go. Let the sword of the Lord just begin to stir and bring up things that need to be dealt with. And Lord, I thank you for the, the word of God going out as living seeds of truth that are sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Spirit of God that will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. In the parable of the seed and the sower, we agree we bind the enemy will not be like birds trying to steal the seed. We bind that in Jesus' name. And Lord, we bless the word of the Lord to be fruitful and go forth and accomplish everything the Lord desires it to. Lord, we thank you for it now that you would cause every one of us to be captivated and locked in by the anointing to give you our best and full attention. By the awesome power of the Holy Spirit that we get captivated, that our eyes get locked in to see what you're showing us, our ears get tuned in to hear what you're speaking to us. Our minds get focused and our hearts sort of at rest and we're totally captivated and focused by the Holy Spirit right now. Holy Spirit, bring us into that place, I ask you right now, so we can receive. We thank you for it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. I just feel as I'm praying just the wind of the Spirit in this place. And I mean, you could feel that today. I just felt like just breaking through into something new. I really believe it was during the, the communion time. We prayed about the communion that the blood of Jesus just flush out. If I can get everybody's attention, please, every focus. We prayed the blood of Jesus flush out any hurt and pain, different things like that, and come into um, what God has for people, the healing, the, the binding up and healing of, of past wounds. And I really felt during the worship time that something was happening with that. And I, I noticed that, that Brianna was prophesying about pressing in to receive that, and I felt something shift. The time of, of communion is very powerful. And please don't ever take that lightly. As we take the Lord's Supper, there is so much that's happening. I believe that in the days to come, it's going to be very powerful. Um, anyway, I went to see David Hogan the other day. I, I think some of you know about that. And Brother David is one of a kind. God made Brother David and broke the mold. There is nobody like that man. I love Brother David. Actually, he's one of my favorite preachers. But he, he made me laugh so hard because if you've listened to him, He's always so aggressive and challenging, and it, you know he knows that. I'm not saying anything he wouldn't tell you, but he's very in your face. And I remembered as he was preaching, it was so challenging to all of us. It was awesome. But at the end of it, he made this statement. He said, uh, "He said, well, he said tonight I took the sword of the Lord. I slapped you around the face a little bit with it to wake you up, and you know." And I just started laughing because I was like, "That's a perfect description of David Hogan's ministry. He just takes a sword, slap you around a little bit with it, wake you up real good, you know." And I said that to say that uh, probably the next couple sermons in this line is probably going to be a little bit like that, to kind of slap us out of a place where we need to be slapped out of by the Word of God. Amen? Amen. 
that the Word of God never convicts, it's not the Word of God. Let me say that again. If the Word of God preached never brings conviction, it's not the Word of God that's being preached. There's times that we need to be encouraged, but there's times the Word of God convicts of sin, and the Word of God deals with things. And if you can sit church service after church service after church service months on end at a church and never feel an ounce of conviction, you're in the wrong church. Well, that's the truth. All right, so let me give you a couple things tonight. Part seven, deception and mixture. I'm going to talk about keepers of the flame. We've got to guard the flame. You know, when God sets us on fire, we have to guard the fire. Leonard Ravenhill, remember you guys have heard him say this on that revival fire that sometimes we have playing. And Leonard Ravenhill said, you know, if the fire dies in you, it wasn't God that died. Amen. It was something in us. When God came and lit the fire of the tabernacle, when Moses had had anointed it and stood back and him and Aaron had blessed the people and the fire came down and lit that, the bronze altar just lit it right there in front of all the people. God lit the fire, but it was the responsibility of the priests to keep the fire going. And I believe that's what I'm talking about tonight. We've got to keep the fire burning. We cannot allow ourselves to get cold and lukewarm. There's different ways that the fire can die out. Unforgiveness is a big one. Allowing compromise in our lives is a big one. Allowing ourselves to get caught up with the things of the world is a big one. We've got to stay separate and holy. And I know that I'm I'm speaking to a lot of young ministers that are coming up. I hope that, that you listen. Because there's a movement in the earth. That sounds so good. It sounds good. If you listen to people talk about it, they know how to spin it just right. And it sounds really good. It sounds like something that we would all want. But in actual fact, they're trying to rewrite, represent Jesus Christ and the gospel in a way that is palatable to the world without them having to change. And here's what they're doing. They're trying to change Jesus and the word into an image that the people will accept. We're not called to make to change Jesus for people. We're called to preach Jesus the way he is, whether people like it or not. And people are supposed to be conforming into the image of him. Not the other way around. That we're trying to conform Jesus into, into the image of what they want. But that's exactly what's going on. And it's going on in the message and it's going on in the ministry of the church overall. I love good worship and I, and I love all the things that, that, that's here in River of Life. I love it. But, you know, it's not about a lot of the things people are making it about. It's about pleasing Jesus. At the end of the day, it's about pleasing him. And, and what I'm concerned is, I hope you guys can remember this, it's become about pleasing people. And not really caring if the Lord is happy with it or not. That's what a lot of things have come to. And I'm not going to do it. I've done made up my mind. I'm, I'm living for what he wants. Amen. And that's all that matters. One day we're going to die and we're going to stand before him. And, and all the people, nobody's going to be there but you and him. And all that's going to matter is what he thought about the sermons, what he thought about the services, what he thought about your message, what he thought about what you were doing in his name the way you presented him, 
all everything's going to be gone except what he thinks about you. So why not live your life every day based on what he thinks about you? Because when you die, you're not going to be ashamed of anything. All right, let me give you a few things tonight. Um, God will send us help from the sanctuary in these last days. I love that scripture in Psalm 20, verse 2. It just is something that stays deep down in me. God sends help from the sanctuary. And first off, I'm talking about from heaven, from that sanctuary down to here. But then God's wanting the sanctuary here to bring help to the people. Let me say that again. God's going to send help from his sanctuary down to here in open heaven, bringing it down to here. But it's our responsibility to steward that in a way to where what the sanctuary has here will help the people. Help is coming from the sanctuary. I love that story I told you guys the other day, and I want to make sure I get it in this, in this um, series and recorded so people that listen to us and follow us can hear this story. But when I was in Toronto at the beginning of this year, I never had the chance to go, and I was excited about going because I know God's been moving there for 20 years, and it's been very powerful, life-changing. And so I knew that, that people in the Brownsville Revival had been powerfully touched in Toronto, and I knew many others have too that have powerful ministries today. So I went there with an expectancy. But one of the stories that stuck out to me I love, and I shared it with you guys the other day, but those that weren't here, was there was a man that had come, a pastor. I think he was from Chicago, but he was there when I was there, and he was telling this story. And God gave him this experience for a reason, okay? He's standing there worshiping God at Toronto sometime in the past, and he said that while he's worshiping the Lord, he sees this huge angel standing there. And he's just kind of taken back. And um, you remember how Peter and... How whenever Jesus was at the Mount of Transfiguration, <laughs> Peter got nervous. Yeah. And Peter says, oh, man, let's, uh, let's build a, a little place for you, and we'll build another place for Moses, and we'll build this over here for Elijah. And he was nervous. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say, as probably we would be too. But this man was taken back at this huge angel. He didn't know what to say. So he's just kind of like, um, 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 well, um, what's your name? He said that angel had absolutely no interest in him whatsoever. He was standing there like on assignment, just looked at him like, whatever, you know, just. And he said he's never been dissed by an angel before, so he didn't know what to do. And so he said, he said, I'm sorry, what was your name? And the angels just leaned over, said something real fast. He didn't understand any of it. And then he asked the angel, he said, well, what are you doing here? And the angel said this, he said, I'm here as a guardian of the presence of God. And that's something that I believe God's doing in these last days. He is bringing help from above. He's bringing down guardians of his presence. He's bringing down the angels that will help bring in this end time harvest. I'm telling you this so you'll know how to pray. Now, here's where this sermon is, might convict some people, but those that, that are quoting prophets or other preachers or books, Christian books, and they're quoting that more than they quote the Bible, they're not balanced. Those that are always talking about angels and visions and dreams, and they're not even really talking about Jesus, they're just always talking about the paranormal, supernatural, that's not balanced. There's a place and time for those things, but our focus has got to be to preach Christ and him crucified. That's where the power is in it. You hear me? 
I remember one time I shared this story already, but I I had preached a meeting and I needed help. And God sent me help from the sanctuary. All right. And I was driving down the road. And this is a true story, man. I saw this angel above my car and he went with me to the meeting. And we had a powerful meeting. But I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't go in the meeting and get everybody's attention on the angel. I didn't even mention it. If it's truly an angel from God, it's not going to want all the attention. This is good, guys. Y'all listen to me. If it's really an angel from God, what does he want to do? He wants to glorify Christ. He wants everybody's eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the source. He doesn't want everybody, hey, look at me. I'm over here. That's not an angel from God. And not only that, it's not my job to preach angels. It's my job to preach Jesus. And when I went in there, I preached Jesus as Savior, Healer, Deliverer, Baptizing the Holy Spirit. You know what happened? People got saved, healed, delivered, baptized in the Holy Ghost. But God sent me some help. He was there to help me that night, and he did. It was a very powerful meeting. But God's going to be sending guardians of his presence. God's going to be sending angels on assignment to bring in the end time harvest. God is going to also pour out his spirit on all flesh and send revival that will help empower us, that will bring healing and deliverance to the church and through us to the world. Revival is going to bring in this end time harvest. Don't depend on the arm of the flesh. Depend on the spirit. If you ever get to the place, and remember this, if you ever get to the place in ministry where you think to yourself, I've got this, you're, you're not looking at the service in front of you where you're completely saying, Lord, if you don't show up, I don't know what to do. It's got to be you. I've got to have the anointing. If you lose that and you start thinking, I got this tonight, you're in a dangerous place. But there's a sanctifying work that's going on right now, and Christ is preparing a bride through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a washing of the blood of Jesus. There's a washing of the water of the Word. There's a purifying fire of the Holy Spirit that is preparing a bride for Christ's coming. That's what God's doing right now. The glory of God is coming upon the church to bring healing and protection. I've heard so many stories over the years of places where God has caused his glory to come down in a meeting. And this thick glory moved in. And while that glory was there, countless people were healed of things. We need the glory to come in our meetings. We do. And I'm going to tell you, what God is doing, he's sending help from his sanctuary in these last days where the angels are coming that we need to help us. The glory is coming down upon the church, upon the people to protect us and help us. Um, God is anointing us in an awesome way. He's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. He knows we're in the last days. He knows the battle is severe. And he is sending us help from his sanctuary. We need to tap into it. The Bible says you don't have because you don't ask. Let's begin to seek God about these things like never before. I don't know about you, but I want a greater level of anointing and glory today than yesterday. But we've got to keep the gospel pure, even if it costs us our life. Y'all better hear me. If God keeps this sermon series going on deception and mixture, one of the things I'm going to get into is the whole me, me, me mentality of American church. Don't get me started on that one. The gospel is not about us, it's about him. And, And the 
the pride that's in America just grieves me because people have gotten to where they think that, that church is a, a Burger King. They could just come have it the way they want it, when they want it, how they want it. It's all about them. It's not anything anymore about the Lord. And it really grieves my heart because people are so selfish. They don't care anything about anymore. A lot of people don't care anything about anymore about sacrifice, laying down their life. You hear what I'm saying? Taking up their cross, really rolling up their sleeves and serving. That's more of coming to be served, not to serve. What I can get out of it, not what I can sacrifice and give. But we've got to lay down our lives to preach the gospel, though it cost us our life, and it might in the days to come. And another thing about the American church is you better listen to me because I don't know how far it will go in America where it's free. But there's people that are being imprisoned and killed for their faith all over the world. And we've got to keep this gospel pure, though it cost us our life. And there may come a day in America where it might. It might cost, cost people some prison time because they refuse to not preach the word. They refuse to say homosexuality is okay. They refuse to say abortion is okay. They refuse to compromise. Therefore, they may have to pay some fines. They may have to go into the court system. They have to, may have to serve some jail time. It may come to America. How many people will still be faithful to the Lord? Might be the best thing ever happened to us, really, because he'll get rid of all the fakes. You know, when you go to other countries, you don't see hypocrisy that much. And I'm talking about where they're persecuted. Why in the world would any hypocrite go around saying that they're a Christian whenever they're going to die? It does a real good job about weeding out all the fakes, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, there's a pure Christianity. It's true. Christianity seems to thrive during persecution and suffering. And Satan hates that because he's trying to kill it. You know, and it just gets stronger. That's got to be annoying to him. He's trying to kill it, and it just keeps getting stronger. Every time a martyr dies, it seems like God just blesses that blood of the martyr to where all of a sudden revival springs out in that place. Have you all noticed that? But Galatians 1, 6-8, it talks about, Paul said that they had uh, gotten away from the pure gospel. And he made a statement to the Galatians. He said, if there's anybody including an angel that was to preach another gospel let him be cursed we've got to lay down our life to make sure that the message stays true preach what the bible says even if it offends people you know true revival historic revival where god really came we haven't really seen it yet in america but i believe it's coming but true historic revival where you look at people like um, wesley and you look at people like finney and you go back and look in wales the Hebridean revival and others. When revival really, truly came and it was full-on revival, there was a convicting message. There was. And, and the power of the Holy Spirit was so strong that people would be found out in public that had fallen over in a ditch somewhere, and they're just laying there groaning. They're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, somebody just happens upon them and leads them to Christ, and that would be commonplace. That's... And we haven't seen that level of revival yet, but I believe that we, we started to see it at Pensacola. And the prophecy was that Pensacola was just the beginning before all of America's ablaze. So I believe we'll see those days. But, but the message convicted the sinner. The revivalists of old were not concerned about 
preaching a message that would make anybody feel good. Oh, man, they would come in. You ought to read Finney's messages and others. I mean, it was, you bunch of heathen reprobates, you're going to burn tomorrow if you don't repent right now. I mean, it was just hardcore, and all these people would come down, and they'd all get saved, and that's the truth. That's what they preach. Read it. Look it up for yourself. Now, what effect did it have? A whole nation had an awakening. That's what happened. People say, well, I don't like that. Well, God does, and a whole nation was shaken by the power of God. A whole nation. So we've got to preach it straight, tell it like it is. Don't sell out to the flesh, the world, and the devil. I posted something on Facebook today about people fall in private long before they fall in public. You've got to deal with the stuff in the secret place. Amen. Be careful who you are are following. Not everybody knows where they're going. Steve Hill's famous message, White Cane Religion. Be careful who you are following because not everybody knows where they're going. Don't follow numbers and charisma and all that stuff. You better learn to follow the Holy Spirit. Be careful who you're listening to. So what has been the message in this whole series? You better know the Bible for yourself. Because there's going to be smooth talkers that know how to twist the scriptures. There's going to be smooth talkers that know how to... to, um, seduce people with doctrines of demons and it's going to sound so good they know how to do it there's manipulation in it there's a there's a spirit about it. i hope you're getting this so don't let the you got to know the word of god for yourself so that the the smooth talkers and those that are going to twist it how, how is it that some people have gotten to the place where literally every scripture in the bible can somehow be about money there, there is a place to preach a little bit about that. That's just part of the Bible. It's in the Bible. But how did it get to a place, though, to where every single scripture in the Bible somehow can be about money and given to them? Let's just be real. That's not balanced preaching. We're going to have to know the Holy Spirit for ourselves. We're going to have to know how to pray. We're going to have to know the Lord. Okay? And we're also going to have to examine the fruit. I'm concerned about some of the fruit. And that leads me into the hyper-grace deception. I've pulled some of this, quite a bit of this from Michael Brown. He did a great job exposing this. But the hyper-grace deception. One of the things I've been dealing with, I've been dealing with some doctrines of demons through this, confronting some, some false teaching and things. And this is one of them. Look at Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I want you all to hear me real good about this. Grace is not what what a lot of people are preaching. A lot of people present grace as a license to sin, and it's really interesting because the Bible says explicitly in those words that grace is not a license to sin. It says that, but yet that's how they preach it. But what grace actually is, it is not mercy. Here's mercy. Mercy is we deserve the wrath of Almighty God. But God extends mercy because he loves us. That's mercy. That's not grace. That's mercy. So what is grace? Grace is favor. That's what it means. Please get this tonight. Grace is God's favor on you to help you live a righteous life. That's what it is. It's his favor on you to help you overcome. You get grace on your life by being humble. Those that are prideful, the grace lifts and they fall. They struggle with sin. They they get into deception. They rebel. They 
Pride is a very horrible thing. But where there's humility, there's grace on somebody, and that favor of God is on them to be able to live a victorious life, to overcome sin. That's what grace actually is. So people that are preaching a different grace, they're misusing the scriptures. And they're trying to make people feel like that they can live in sin and it's okay because of, quote, grace. All right, so this is the hyper-grace message. This is extreme grace. This is where people are getting to, into very serious deception that can cause the masses to go to hell. This is really, you know, this is a logical step when you're dealing with teaching of extreme views about predestination. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, but let me explain it real fast. God has predestined us. So in other words, God knows everything all the time. Did you know that nobody's ever said to God, hey God, did you know this? God knows everything all the time. So God knew from the beginning who's going to be saved and who isn't. How many understand that? He's extended grace to everybody. He's extended the cross to everybody. But, but those that accept Jesus Christ, he knows. There's an extreme view of predestination that says that when you're born... You're either going to go to heaven or hell, period, no matter what you do. You're just predestined that way. Which is ridiculous, because where's the free will in that? Are y'all following me? I hope this is making sense. So there's certain that people that have this extreme predestination view believe that you take ten people, five of them were born to go to hell, and there's nothing you can do to save them. There's five that were born to go to heaven, there's nothing you can do to keep them from heaven. They're just predestined that way. That's ridiculous. But that there's a lot of people that believe along those lines. When you have that, then where's the free will and what's the point of evangelizing? So this is a real deception. It's a problem. So those same people that lean toward that type of teaching also lean toward the once saved, always saved, where somebody can come down and they can say a prayer, they can give their life to Jesus, and go out live in sin and still go to heaven when they die. That's another doctrine of demons. This is good preaching. It's, it's convicting, isn't it? But somebody that's really, truly saved, number one, is not going to want to go out and continue in sin in the first place. But there are people that struggle. And the last thing that they need is somebody patting them on the back going, you're okay in your sin. You know, God understands. And then they're going to go out feeling like they're fine to keep living that way. And that, that is where I'm... So the people that have this weird predestination type view also have this weird view about once saved, always saved. It makes sense. It's a logical step. And then the next logical step in this deception is hyper-grace. This didn't happen overnight. This has happened over hundreds of years. This teaching about predestination and stuff that was not good started hundreds of years ago. And over time, it evolved into this deception right here I'm reading to you. So let me just read this to you. How tragic it is today when God's people mistake the voice of his correcting love for the condemning voice of Satan. Did you know there's people today that think God's voice of correction is actually a condemning voice of Satan? How sad it is when they resist the purifying work of the Spirit, claiming that there's nothing to purify since God no longer sees their sin. How many knows that all of us need some cleaning up? I don't care what anybody says. I pastor, I know. And not only for pastors and ministers, I'm talking about the people. You mean to tell me that you guys out there feel like I'm perfect? I have arrived. 
I'm perfect. No. All of us have some cleansing that we need to do. But the hyper-grace message, please follow me in this, it's important. It's a message that teaches that God does not see the sins of his children at all. Since we've already been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, and since all of our sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven, see, they believe that your sins, past, present, and your future sins, you will commit one day, that that's already forgiven. Now, if that were true, then why in the world did John the Apostle write, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why is that even in the Bible if you don't ever have to confess sins? Do you see this? But what they're doing, and I know that they don't mean to do it because it's all about making people feel good and have a good self-esteem is the motive behind this, but they mean, probably they mean well, but what they're doing is, is they're causing people to remain defiled spiritually and they can't get into God's manifest presence. The only way that you're going to be able to really get into God's manifest presence is by the blood of Jesus washing you clean and covering you and bringing you in. They also believe that the Holy Spirit will never convict believers of sin anymore because believers never need to confess their sins and believers don't need to repent of their sins since God sees them as perfect. So you mean to tell me that any of you within the sound of my voice believe that God sees you as perfect all the time? If that were the case, then why would Hebrews 12 be written where it says, let's set, let's shake off of us. Let's get all, all, I'm sorry, all the sins, the besetting sins off of us, break it off so that we can run the race that's set before us. And then it goes on to say that God disciplines those that he loves. And if he's disciplining you, it's because he sees you as a son and he loves you. That's why he's disciplining you. Why would that even be in the Bible in the first place that we need to shake off these besetting sins and run the race and let the Father discipline us? One hyper-grace teacher wrote, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me through the blood of Jesus. Excuse me? He sees me cleansed already. Likewise, he sees us as holy and righteous. He sees us, uh, when he sees us, he loves what he sees. No offense, but how many knows there's people out there living in sin that that Jesus isn't looking down and saying, I love what I see. This person just went to church and now they went home and they're having sex with their girlfriend outside of marriage and I just love what I see. I don't think so. So Jesus isn't loving everything that he sees. Did Jesus love what he saw when he rebuked five out of the seven congregations in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 through 3? Don't you remember reading those? I have this against you. You did this, this, and this. Repent. Does that sound like he was happy with everything he saw in the church there? What about Paul writing on behalf of the Lord? Did he love what he saw when he warned the Galatians that they've fallen from grace and become trapped in legalism? James, also writing as a servant of the Lord in the Bible, canonized scripture. Did he love when he, what he saw when he rebuked the readers for being friends of the world? Adulterers, adulteresses. Remember that? And James went on to say, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Those that choose to be a friend of the world become enemies of God. Does that sound like that James 
viewed all Christians as Jesus just loves everything he sees all the time. Why did Jesus rebuke the believers in Laodicea, telling them that they were wretched and poor, naked, blind? Why didn't Jesus say, I see you beautifully clothed, healthy, and rich? Because he didn't like what he saw. You gotta understand something. When Jesus comes in like that to rebuke us and to cleanse us, he's doing it because he loves us and he's wanting to take us into a deeper, more meaningful relationship and he's trying to help us. His discipline is his love. His rebuke, his correction should be embraced. Why in the world will we look at Jesus' correction as something that's bad? I want the Lord to tell me if something's not right. Don't you? If there's something that's wrong, I want him to tell me so I can deal with it. I don't want to go around deceived thinking that I'm perfect all the time. Or that he just sees me perfect all the time. That's, you know as well as I do, that's ridiculous. And if the Lord doesn't see our sins, then why did James write that if a believer who is sick and is also sinned, that God would forgive him and heal him if he would confess it? Remember that? Confess your sins one to another. If he doesn't see our sins, why did the Lord discipline the believers in Corinth? We would all do well to pay attention to 1 Corinthians 11.32, which says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Let me read that again. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. I could go on and on, but what about scriptures where the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, he said, be be holy, be separate, come out from among them, my people. Don't touch an unclean thing, be holy. What about in Revelation 18, where John was under the inspiration of that incredible vision that he had, and he said, come out of her, my people, so that you don't share in her plagues. The Lord is calling us to come out and be holy. And it's time that all of us be accountable. And I'm going to tell you, just as plain as I can tell you, because I know that there'll probably come a point in time where where different people are moved on to different things, but you better be careful that whenever you're sitting under somebody's ministry, that their fruit behind closed doors is not different than the way they are in the pulpit. You better be careful that somebody's not up preaching and then going home and looking at pornography. You better be careful that, and, and, and if you see that somebody's uh, teaching youth or teaching some Sunday school class or, or leading worship or whatever, and then you go out with them out to eat and they're cussing and they're, they're treating the waitress like garbage. Or, you know, they're, they're saying, talking about God in between drags on their cigarette. They're drinking alcohol. There's something wrong. We need, we need to live holy and, and see that the Lord wants us to examine the fruit. There needs to be some accountability and some holiness. And the Lord is wanting us to deal with these things. He's not expecting everybody to come to him and be perfect, but he does expect us to be repentant. And I won't back down from that. He doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does expect us to have a humble, repentant heart that he can deal with us and we will repent. Jesus shouldn't come in and get angry. He should be able to come in and say, this is wrong, deal with it. And that's it. You just go, Lord, you're right. Forgive me, wash me. He shouldn't have to get angry. He shouldn't have to get mad about it. It shouldn't get to a point that arouses anger in the Lord 
that he's looking at a church that he's dealt with over and over and over, and they refuse to repent, and now he's angry. Now judgment is, is coming. It shouldn't come to that. And as I said last week, there's, there's lampstands that are being removed. There's places that they'll have a marquee and a sign, and they'll be, a, quote, a church, and the world will look at them as a church, and they're not, they got nonprofit status and all of that, and they're recognized that way. But as far as heaven is concerned, they're not a church. Is the sword of the Lord slapping all of us around a little bit tonight? The conviction never bothered me. I think there's a rebellious spirit with some people, but I remember sitting under Steve Hill's ministry at Brownsville, and that um, got any problem I have with being convicted out real quick. I mean, it was, I mean, I felt convicted every night. I felt like I needed to get saved again and again and again. It's the best thing ever happened to me. It's why things are the way they are now. There's no telling where I'd be without that today, honestly. So let me go through a couple of things. Um, here's the three main spirits that if you want to move a God, you're going to run up against. How many wants to be ready for that? Because God's wanting you to blast right through it and have the victory, but I'm going to give some warnings. I've preached on this before, and some have really heeded what I said, and they've, and they've gone from glory to glory and done really well. Other people, they nodded at me, and they smiled, and they looked real good. And then they got spanked really bad by the enemy and whipped real good, and um, they're not doing too good today. So I'm going to preach it straight. Is that Okay. All right, number one, Leviathan. This is a serious spirit, and um, it's not to be trifled with. It's no joke. This spirit functions in great confusion. When this spirit comes in, it brings a lot of confusion. It is the accuser of the brethren. When, when Satan comes as the accuser of the brethren, he's coming in the form of Leviathan. Okay? So let me just recap last week. The, the scales of Leviathan are so tightly together that wind cannot get through. So a lot of times these people don't feel God, even though other people do around them. They have a hard time sensing God's presence. They have a hard time being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but remember how there was like a sneezing and there was fire and flames that would come out with it? Leviathan has a counterfeit fire. Leviathan has counterfeit revelation, and it has counterfeit fire because... When Leviathan comes, it knows how to whip up a crowd. It knows how to be charismatic. It knows how to get everybody excited. But it's not the move of God. It's, it's a move of man. It's a counterfeit. Leviathan will bring confusion. It'll bring counterfeit revelation. Count, almost like counterfeit gifts. Okay? There are people that think they can turn on and turn off the gifts on their own. That's Leviathan. It's as the Spirit of God moves upon you. It's not something you can just turn on. Are you hearing me? There's certain people, I grew up in Pentecost, that you could, you could just count on it. At a certain point in time, they're going to jump up and give a message in tongues. You know it's not God, man. I mean, they're just, and, and you love them, but it's, it's Leviathan. It's, it's, they want to be noticed. It's how they feel good about themselves or whatever in church and uh, brother Rodney Howard Brown grew up in Pentecost, and he said that him and his brother nicknamed certain people that brother 
Randashiki or something because every service, <laughs> every service he'd jump up and give that. They knew it, man, and it wasn't, there wasn't nothing about God about it. It's just what they did. So that's Leviathan, all that, because it's pride, okay? Here's, here's the danger of Leviathan. Leviathan has turned many to hate God. And the people at the time would have never thought it. You know, did you know that there's a high percentage? Ray Comfort talked about this, and this is an actual fact. They studied this out statistically. There's a very high percentage of atheists that are atheists because something happened in their life that turned them against God. Okay? They lost, maybe they prayed for a parent that died. Something happened, and so now they hate God. So now they don't believe in God. So now they think God, um, you know, they, they hate the church, they hate Christians, they think God doesn't exist or whatever. But Leviathan is behind that because Jesus said clearly, I have come to give life and life more abundant. Who has come to steal, to kill, and destroy? Satan, obviously. Who seems to get blamed for all the stealing, killing, and destroying? God. That's Leviathan. He's the accuser. He's always accusing people, accusing God to people's minds that if God was real, if God really loved you, if God really cared about you, then this wouldn't have happened. And the whole time people are getting mad at God who didn't even do anything. And they're not even getting mad at the devil who actually did do that. You know, they'll have um, maybe a parent that, that they got cancer and they prayed for him and the parent withered away and died and all of a sudden they hate God. God did not create cancer. God did not give the person cancer. It was the devil that did it. I remember I talked to a guy one time that I tried to witness to him. And, and he was kind of irritated with me. And I said, what's the deal? Are you, are you mad at God about something? He said, well, yeah. And what happened was his wife was giving birth to their daughter. And the daughter and the, and the mother both died. Now, this would be devastating for anybody, okay? He lost his daughter and his wife. That would be horrible. And so my heart really went out to the guy. But I told him, he said he thinks that God just doesn't care and all this stuff. And I told him in a real gentle way, I was loving him, but I said, listen, man. I said, I know that your wife and your daughter would not want you to go to hell over this. They wouldn't want you to hate God and end up in hell over what happened. And I explained to him that God is not a murderer. God did not come down. God did not go into the hospital room and kill your baby and kill your wife. God didn't do that. Now, the devil might have done it, but don't blame God for what the devil did. You'd be surprised how many people, as you guys keep doing street evangelism, that you're going to run into that have had something happen and they got an issue with God. Because they blame God for it. Every time something happens, it's God's fault. From what I understand about the Bible, it was man's fault that sin entered the world in the first place. That man has free will. Well, people get mad at God because a terrorist did something. God's not a terrorist. God didn't make the bomb. God, God had nothing to do with that. That was Satan behind that. And they get mad at God because some criminal act that happened. God is not a criminal. And God didn't go to a criminal and encourage them to do those evil things. That's free will. That person has a free will to do those things. Is this helping? So Leviathan comes as the accuser. <clears throat> he has caused, he has been behind so many church splits and betrayals of church leaders. That's Leviathan. 
It started with Lucifer in heaven. And for pastors that hear this, that have had a broken heart, and they've been wounded by people, let me encourage you that this is a biblical fact, that God himself had a split in heaven led by Lucifer. And you know that broke God's heart. Okay? So God went through it. There's no immunity to that. There's nothing that you necessarily did wrong. It's Leviathan. Leviathan is behind it. And Leviathan will find an arrogant person. And he, Leviathan can find somebody, hey, I can use this person. And he will move on them. And if they don't repent pretty soon, not only are they leading a church rebellion against the leadership, but they're taking as many with them as they can. Okay? That is, that is an act of Satan. It's demonic. And God hates division, doesn't he? God hates division among his people. And Leviathan is the spirit that splits churches more than any other spirit. Okay? Leviathan will accuse you to yourself and make you feel like a piece of garbage. How many have ever felt unworthy like a piece of garbage? Without you even realizing it, that was Leviathan. You didn't realize it, but it was. Trying to accuse you to yourself he will try to accuse others to you. He'll try to put in your mind negative thoughts about other people that aren't even valid. If you would just go to the person and talk it out, you would see that there's nothing to it. And he will try to accuse God to you where you, he turns you against God. Be careful with this spirit. It's very serious. And another thing about Leviathan, don't be deceived into thinking that false humility is going to give you victory. False humility is insecure. God didn't call us to be insecure. He called us to be bold. Sitting around all insecure and, and weak and defeated, and all, that's not true humility. That's false humility. People say, well, I'll humble myself and I'll go be real insecure and down on myself. And that's not, that's not humble. That's actually empowering Leviathan even more against you. And don't, don't give in to false humility about like something ridiculous. I'll, I'll dress real down or I'll do outward things real down to, to appear humble. That's not true humility. Jesus talked about how the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs that looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were dead men's bones. God's not interested in your outward fake humility. He's interested in your heart being truly humble. And a true humble heart will be what gives you victory over Leviathan. As you humble yourself down and you renew your mind, you're going to have to listen to me. If you want victory over Leviathan, you're going to have to learn how to humble yourself to the ground. Let God fight your battles. Let people say what they're going to say. You humble yourself down to the dirt, and you humble your heart before him and renew your mind and let him fight your battles. That is what will defeat Leviathan. Number two, the Jezebel spirit. Oh, my goodness. This is a vicious, vicious snake, man. It seduces and controls it's all about a power struggle. Leviathan attacks. Listen to me. I want you to hear this because hopefully you'll remember this. Leviathan attacks the glory of God. Where God's manifest presence is coming down, Leviathan will target that. Everybody say this out loud. Leviathan, Leviathan attacks, attacks the glory. Leviathan sees the glory of God, the manifest presence of God coming into a place, 
and Satan will send Leviathan to try to kill that move of God. Now, when you're dealing with Jezebel, Jezebel is sent to attack the the anointing of Elijah. The spirit of Elijah. You know what the spirit of Elijah is? If you guys can remember this, it is the spirit of revival. Anybody ever heard that expression? There was a song I think Daryl Evans wrote. Yep, the spirit of revival. We sing that song. I love that song. Man, I love that song. We need to do that song again. Y'all write that down. I knew it was in there somewhere. It was, I'm going to tell you, that's Elijah, the spirit of revival. See, the, the, the Elijah anointing was what was on John the Baptist when he, he would tell those Pharisees, you bunch of snakes. He told you you could be saved, you know. And he was preaching hard and he was preaching repentance and people were coming to him in the thousands to be baptized. What was he doing? He was preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. The spirit of Elijah prepares the way for a visitation. Did y'all get that? The spirit of Elijah prepares the way for a visitation. One more time. The spirit of Elijah prepares the way for a holy visitation. Okay? The spirit of Elijah is very prophetic. The spirit of Elijah, and Jezebel hates the true prophets, but the spirit of Elijah is also um, the anointing of the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, sevenfold manifestation. The Holy Spirit is described as this, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. That's the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is coming in all of those attributes, he's coming as the spirit of Elijah. It's very prophetic, and it's very revival-based. It's very repentance-based. There's a holy fire. The spirit of Elijah, when you think of Elijah, don't you just think of fire? The spirit of Elijah is very fiery. And Satan hates the spirit of Elijah. When the Holy Spirit anoints somebody with the spirit of Elijah, Satan hates it. And what he'll do is, if it's, if it's on a minister, if it's on a church, he will send a spirit of Jezebel to try to attack that church. And they usually won't come with just one or two. They'll come in dozens. And you really have to walk with God. And it can be a real battle to get on the other side of that. But here's, here's the spirit of Jezebel. If this makes you feel uncomfortable, that's not a good sign. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Number one is... The spirit of Jezebel, here's what I want you to hear me the most about. It seduces. The spirit of Jezebel seduces. It seduces people. You know how you're really going to defeat Jezebel the most? Is that you've really surrendered your whole heart to the Lord. Because then Jezebel doesn't have anything in you to seduce. That's the greatest battle right there. Because Jezebel wants to seduce people into sin. Wants to pull... If there's something... If there's an idol, there's something in your heart that you really haven't fully surrendered to the Lord, the Jezebel spirit will try to put a hook in that in you and try to hook that and start drawing you into that very thing. If it's the love of money, if it's lust, whatever it is, it'll try to put a hook and draw you into it. So the greatest way you're going to defeat Jezebel is to get on your face and just give everything over, give your whole heart. There's nothing in you, just Jesus, just burn out everything. I surrender everything to you. I want you to have my whole heart. I don't want anything in me that the devil can manipulate. I want to be holy. That right there will defeat and disarm Jezebel a lot. The second thing is, is you're going to have to learn how to die to yourself. 
Now, let me tell you what I mean by that, because this spirit will try to humiliate you. It will try to use people to discourage you, that, that it will try to use them to attack you. And you've got to be so crucified with Christ that you're going to get up the next morning and your head's going to be held up, your shoulders back, and I'm going after God. Even if they hate me, even if they turn people against me, I'm going after God. I'm dead to self, focused on him. You've got to die to yourself because this spirit will try to beat you down into a depression. Did you all hear me? Try to beat somebody down into a depression. What happened to Elijah? He went into a depression. Are you all hearing me? Why? Because some witchy woman was trying to attack him. Something tried to come over him like a spell or a curse and beat him down to where he was suicidal. This was Elijah. We're no better than him. That spirit will try to beat you down if you let it down into some deep, dark depression. Don't let it do it. It wants to control you. Everybody knows that by now, you know, in the body of Christ. But the Jezebel spirit seeks to control. It will try to intimidate or it will try to manipulate. Don't let anybody intimidate you or manipulate you. Every book I've read in the Jezebel spirit talks about, you know, you try to confront it and the person will start crying and they'll try to manipulate the conversation. They'll try to intimidate. They'll try to stare you down with an intimidation. You can't let that get to you. Don't allow the enemy to intimidate and don't allow the enemy to manipulate. You're going to still go after God even if you go alone. Amen? It subtly tries to pull people into sin. Here's where Jezebel traffics a lot, entertainment. People don't understand that the Jezebel spirit has really got deep roots in entertainment, the entertainment industry. And it will try to use the entertainment world of music, movies, television, and other things to try to seduce you. And you, a lot of times people don't even realize it because it's so subtle. It'll try to seduce them into some compromise they shouldn't be listening to or watching or whatever. And they don't realize it, but their anointing is, is beginning to fade. Their prayer life very subtly is beginning to diminish. The presence of God is going down. And that Jezebel spirit very subtly, it's very subtle, will come in and just try to seduce them into entertainment that they shouldn't have in their life. And pretty soon, without realizing it, they wake up one day and it's like Samson. They try to shake themselves for the Spirit of God to come upon them. But they done got an ungodly haircut, metaphorically speaking. The anointing is gone. The Spirit of God has lifted. And all of a sudden, it's not like it used to be. Now you want to rise up and crush the enemy, and the enemy's overtaking you. Do you see what I'm saying? Witchcraft, prayers, and curses. Somebody that has a Jezebel spirit, in actual fact, even though they may be a Christian, they operate and function as a witch. Y'all understand that? They operate and function as a witch. It's a witchcraft spirit. It's very rebellious. They'll be very rebellious toward authority. They don't like authority. They don't like being told what to do. But not only that, they seem to be clairvoyant. They'll get information. They're getting information, but it's not from the Holy Spirit. It's from another spirit. And so they'll know things they shouldn't know. They seem to be real religious. And they, many times, will say certain things out of their mouth, maybe meant to hurt you or attack you or prophesy or something, but when it comes out of their mouth, you can feel it's like daggers trying to stab you. It's a curse. Did y'all hear that? 
They'll go in secret and they'll pray their will over you in the church. Let me say that again. They'll go in secret and they will try to pray their will over you and the church. It's witchcraft. And you're going to have to break that. And it's, it's just as real as if a witch came in here. It's the, same, it's the same spirit. Let me say this again. They'll say things to you, whether it's in anger or maybe they're trying to, quote, prophesy, whatever it is. They'll, they'll say things. And it's literally like daggers coming out of their mouth trying to cut you, trying to stab you. And those are curses. And a lot of times the reason why Jezebel is able to get into somebody's life, it prefers women, even though there are male Jezebels, and I've seen them. Very controlling men, tyrant type people. But, but it prefers the seductiveness of a woman. And Ahab tries to attack men usually. That's just normal. But let me give you a story. Randy Clark told this really interesting story. He said that there was this young man in his church when he pastored. And this young man got really bent out of shape and mad at him. And they had a disagreement. The young man left the church. Okay. Randy's going on doing what pastors do. And the young man went home and began to ask God, what is wrong with Randy? There's got to be something wrong with that man. You know, just tell me what's wrong with Randy. And this young man, as he was praying, the Lord spoke to him and gave him a vision. And I'm not going to get into all of it because it has to do with Randy's calling and all that. But nonetheless, the young man realized when the Lord spoke to him that the problem was really not, never was Randy. The problem was him. And what happened was he had had a negative relationship with his father. He was very wounded. And so he was projecting that on Randy. And in one of the visions, God gave him like two or three different visions. In one of the visions, he saw that Randy was actually supposed to be a spiritual father to him. But because he was so offended and he left like he did, he was not going to receive that. He was cutting himself off from that. So this young man had the wisdom to humble himself. Everybody say, humble myself. (laughs) He cut himself a good slice of humble pie. He ate every bit of it. He goes in to see Randy and told him, said, Brother, listen, God spoke to me and showed me that it was me. And um, I was projecting on you stuff that had nothing to do with you. It had to do with father issues and things in my life. Of course, Randy forgave him and loved him, gave him a big hug, and everything was okay. But he came that close to cutting himself off and estranging himself from somebody that was supposed to be a spiritual father. You don't understand how serious that really is. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. That young man's life was supposed to be under that mantle. Now, Randy has, has seen revival all over the world, countless healings, miracles, incredible man of God, very powerful mantle, all of that. That young man could have cut himself off where he didn't get any of it, nothing. You understand that? His life would have went down a path that would have totally estranged him from Randy, and he would have benefited nothing from that relationship. Do you see how big of a deal that is? See, when the spirit of Elijah comes, the Bible says the spirit of Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. It heals the generations. Where a spirit of Jezebel is, it tears up those generational relationships. It cuts them off. Whenever um, 
I'll say this a certain way, use caution as saying it, but there was a time years ago where there were some people that had a Jezebel spirit that, that were in our ministry and I had to deal with them. One of the things I noticed, and I mean I noticed it immediately after they left, was that the younger generation, there had been a chasm. They, they were over here doing their thing, we were over here doing ours. I was never really for that, but that's just the way it was. The same week those people left, I had to confront it. It was not fun, but you got to do what you got to do. Amen? I had to confront it. They left. The, the same week they left, I noticed an immediate change in the atmosphere, the spirit. Something broke. And all the young people started wanting to hang out with everybody else in the church. And the spirit of Elijah now was turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. And to, the, to this day... All the young people love hanging out with the adults. It's never been a problem in this church. But when they were here, there was a division there. And in other places as well. So the spirit of Elijah will bring relationships together. Jezebel will tear them up. Intimidation, witchcraft. All right, the next one is a religious spirit. Is this helping you guys expose this stuff? Listen, these are not little bitty um, troll demons, okay, that are running around being a nuisance. These are not like little Oompa Loompas, right? Anybody ever seen Willy Wonka? These are not Oompa Loompas. These are very powerful bull demons that are coming in to destroy God's people and destroy churches. These are powerful um, ruling spirits, wickedness in the heavenlies. All right, the next one is a religious spirit. A religious spirit is also known as an antichrist spirit, and it opposes the anointing. So Leviathan opposes the glory. Jezebel opposes the spirit of Elijah. And a religious spirit opposes the anointing. Where there's an anointing, there's going to be a religious spirit sent against that anointing. Christ means the anointed one. An antichrist spirit is an anti-anointing spirit. Let me say that again. Christ means the anointed one. So an anti-Christ spirit is an anti-anointing spirit. That's why you can Google any revival, okay? You can Google any anointed minister, and you're going to see that religious anti-Christ spirit come up because all these people have taken the time, bless their heart, to try to slam every move of God known to man. And not just today, but in history. Because it is a religious spirit. And let me make this statement. A religious spirit... The more free you are from a religious spirit, the more um, resurrection power will be flowing through you. The more, and it's, let me say like you have a glass of water. The less religion you got, the more power you got. One of the smartest prayers you can pray is, Lord, burn all the religion out of me. That's why I tell people, and, and behind closed doors, but I tell people a lot of times, be patient. Be patient with people. Now, I've probably been patient to a fault with some people. My wife would probably agree with that. I probably have been too patient with people. But a religious spirit is very impatient. It's very angry, measure up, line up, just drill sergeant type thing, you know. But, but the see, it's like you can carry almost like a spirit of accusing people and being hard on people and beating people down. Or you can have a different spirit about you that builds people up and encourages people. It's not that you're tolerating anything. 
because I don't tolerate stuff. I'll tell people that's not right. You need to quit doing that. But nonetheless, I'm patient with them and their imperfections. I'll put my arm around them and help them. That, see, a religious spirit won't do that. So here's a religious spirit. First John 4 talks about an antichrist spirit. You see the religious spirit in the life of the Pharisees. So just, you know, read the Bible and look up the Pharisees, and that's a good depiction of the religious spirit. The religious spirit has a tendency to say the Holy Spirit is a demon. Remember how they did that? Jesus cast out demons, and the Pharisees said, said Jesus was demon-possessed. I mean, how blind can you be? They did. They said, he's demon-possessed. He's like a witch doctor or something. He's over here casting out demons by the power of demons. And Jesus is over here going, I don't have a demon. I'm doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. But to them, the Holy Spirit was a demon. How many religious people out there, to them, the Holy Spirit is a demon? And the scary thing is, Jesus said that's the blasphemy of the Spirit moving down that path. But nonetheless... Jesus, you start seeing people speak in tongues. You start seeing people fall on the ground or whatever. And somebody's sent back going, that's a demon. That's, that's witchcraft. Really? But that is a religious spirit. It's very opposed to the anointing. It's very opposed to the power of God. Very opposed to the gifts. All right. So the religious spirit, the prideful aspect of religion it will want to judge and criticize and debate. You ever met people that want to judge? They want to criticize and they want to debate. And in their debating, they are not interested in truth. They're interested in, in winning the argument. That's all they're interested in. They don't care about what is actual truth. They just want to beat you in the debate. Now, the fear side of a religious spirit, if somebody is fearful and given over to fear, they seek to control the move of God and control godly leaders. See, there's religious people that will try to rise up and control the move of God and control the leaders. And if you let that happen, it will put a wet blanket on that fire and put it out probably quicker than anything. You cannot have God in control and man in control at the same time. You can't. Either God's going to be in control doing what he wants to do, or man's going to be in control, but you can't have both. I went to see um, Rodney Harbrown. I think some of you guys might have been with me, but, I mean, it's so awesome. And and there was one guy that just, so run around doing, you know, cartwheels or something, you know, and Rodney, bless his heart, Rodney's just up there going, this is what he said, too. He's up there, he's like, well, he said, we pray for God to come. You can't get upset when he shows up. Because, I mean, people are going to react. But I remember in the meeting that, that, man, he's up there preaching and he's fire, you know, and people are, are, are laughing over here. People are crying over here. People over here fell out of the pew. There's somebody over here shaking under the power. And if you were to look at that from a, a religious point of view, you were to walk in the back door and you were to stand there. And all of a sudden there's people everywhere going like that. You, I could see where somebody would think, this is utter chaos. But you know what that is? That's God in control. And at the end of the service, there's all these testimonies. You follow his ministry and other people's ministry, there's, there's thousands and thousands of testimonies. I fell out of my chair. I was shaking on the ground. I had this vision. I used to 
struggle so deeply with this, that, and the other. Now I'm completely delivered. I mean, thousands of testimonies like that. And you know what the religious community will come in and they'll say, that's of the devil, that's evil, that's horrible. You need to come to our church. And you know what their church is? It's stoic, it's dead, it's boring, it's dry. Everybody comes in one way and leaves the same as they came. So why in the world would we want that? Why do you think the world doesn't want it? Because they know it's not real. They know there's no power in it. So we can't have men controlling. You know what a religious spirit is? It's the opposite of being childlike. A childlike person, is they're not preoccupied with self. They're not preoccupied with how do I look? What's my reputation? They're not cynical. Have you ever noticed nowadays that you'll see a lot of people are really, really cynical? Every picture is photoshopped. Every um, video is fake. Everything out there is fake. There's nothing real. And, you know, those cynical people, uh, they're not childlike at all. And, and I'm telling you, they're missing out on so much that God's doing because everything to them is just fake. Everything's fake. That's so arrogant. Because, you know why that is? Because they don't want to feel stupid if something turns out to be fake out there. You know, But you can't be like that. You've got to be childlike. And a childlike person is humble and they're teachable. And they're not worried about looking stupid. There's a child. How many of you guys have been around children very much? Some of you work with children. Those that work with children professionally. Back me up. Are all the little children in the classroom worried about, do I look stupid right now? No? All right. They don't care what they look like. They're, they're just whatever. And I'm going to tell you, when we're childlike in God's kingdom, we're not overly preoccupied with how I look, what's my reputation, what's my status, am I going to be made fun of, am I going to be persecuted, none of that matters. You got to be careful with the religious spirit because, listen, a bondage to a demon, a literal bondage, is a critical eye. Now listen to me. There's people that have some kind of something that is a literal demonic bondage on them where they have given into that spirit so much that now they cannot help but be critical. They've got to get delivered of it. It's a demon. It's, it's, well, I heard that in the Brownsville revival, they said, you know what is the greatest deliverance, what the most testimonies have been in Brownsville? They said by far has been the deliverance of a critical spirit. Anybody that followed that revival saw all the shaking and the manifestations, and every religious person that came in there was offended at it. A religious person, Christianity becomes legalistic and ritualistic. It's not all about rules. There are laws in place, but it's not. I don't obey the laws because um, of the reasons of legalism, but because I love the Lord. To me, it's not all about legalism. It's about I love the Lord, so I want to please him. A religious spirit is all about legalism. But the Holy Spirit is all about, let's fall in love with Jesus. Are you seeing the difference? Christianity becomes very ritualistic. How many churches out there, you know what's going to happen every time you go. It's the exact same cookie cutter thing every week. It's become a dead ritual. I hope we never get to a place where it's like that. Oh my goodness. 
Lord, come do what you want to do. Amen? Shake things up. But a religious spirit will put a a wet blanket on revival and dry up the anointing. So how do you defeat a religious spirit? You humble yourself and be willing to be childlike. Let me say that again. You humble yourself and be willing to be childlike. You humble yourself and you're willing to be childlike. Somebody that cracks me up in their testimony was John Kilpatrick in the revival. He was always a suit and tie professional, uptight. I mean, he'll tell you this. He was very uptight, very professional. Everything was straight-laced. But he loved God with all of his heart, and he was sincere about the move of God. But he was very straight-laced. When revival came, he fell out for four hours on the platform and was so drunk in the spirit, he couldn't even hardly, he was just out for months and had to be carried around. His own son had to help, you know, get him dressed for bed, had to help him because he was so drunk in the spirit he couldn't function. All of that reputation, all of that status in the community, all that stuff about what people think of me, every bit of that was shot. He said he would go into restaurants and hear people lean over and whisper, that's that guy with all that stuff going on in his church. And he used to be the guy that would be invited to do everything in the community. All of a sudden, the invitations went away. As he was the guy pastor in the crazy church. It was that church, you know. All that crazy stuff's going on. Should we change our name from River of Life to that church? (laughs) Put a warning sign off. Whatever God wants to do, he's going to do. Come in at your own caution. You know? But listen, Evan Roberts during the Welsh Revival protected the move of God in the presence of God. Evan Roberts... He so cherished the presence of God. It was so important to him that he would call people down. Somebody got up and, and was starting to sing or something out of, and it was quenching the spirit. He'd jump, sit down, you know, and then they'd go back into prayer. He so cherished the presence of God, he wouldn't let anything go on. Some visiting preacher wants to get up, you know, and start preaching while the Holy Spirit's moving over here in intercession. He'd call him down, sit down, that's not God, you know. And he was going to protect the move of God at all costs. We've got to be like that today. William Seymour would not allow man to have any control over the move of God. You understand that? William Seymour even got crossways with a spiritual father over this issue, but he would not allow anybody to control the move of God. The Holy Spirit was going to come. The Holy Spirit was going to do what he wanted to do. And if you didn't like it, there's the door. That was William Seymour. He did not care at all about man's control. He wouldn't put up with it. He was firm in that. Steve Hill said, a man's desperation for the things of God should melt away all preoccupations with self, with notoriety, with public image, social status, social status, your stinky reputation, amen? And your hunger and your thirst, if it's genuine, will drive you to eat and drink regardless of the opinions of others. You'll be willing to be a fool in the sight of others in order to be embraced in the arms of the Lord. That's childlike. And that is the opposite of a religious spirit. A religious spirit is all caught up with themselves. What's the three spirits, Leviathan, Jezebel, and religion, but what was the key component to victory over all three of them was humbling yourself. You humble yourself down, and Leviathan will be defeated through humility. With Jezebel's spirit, you humble yourself down. With, with religion, you humble yourself down to be childlike. 
So those that will remain humble and broken before the Lord and desperate. Let me give you two more things and then, then we'll pray with people. When things happen in Israel, it affects the church also. When God took Abraham and called him, he took Abraham out and he showed him, he said, I want you to look up in the sky and he saw these stars. And God said, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars. You can't even number them. And then the sand on the seashore, he said, I'm going to make your descendants like the sand. The stars in the sky is the church. It's the spiritual children of Abraham. We're light in the world. The sand on the seashore is the nation of Israel. Sand is, you know, bound to the earth. The nation of Israel is bound to the earth, so to speak. It's, but nonetheless, there's a covenant there with the land and the Jews. So follow me in this line of thinking, two things. But first off, let me give you this real quick. The rapture. Let me give you a couple things before we move out of this. The church, this probably isn't in your notes, but listen to this. The church was birthed with a suddenly. And it will end with a suddenly. The church was birthed when suddenly there was a rushing wind that blew in on Pentecost. And the church will end with a suddenly in the twinkling of an eye as far as the bride being caught away. Why is this important that I'm talking about this stuff? It, it shapes and forms a lot of your other views. The Bible says we're not appointed to wrath, but let me give you an example. There's nowhere in the Bible that says we're going to escape suffering and persecution. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. We're not promised to escape suffering or persecution for that matter. In fact, we're promised that we're going to have it. But there's a difference between satanic attack, persecution from evil men, from governments of men, and all that the church has faced over the centuries. There's a difference between that that's suffering of persecution. There's a difference between that and the wrath of God coming down on the earth. Y'all see that? There's a difference. And the Bible says in Revelation 16 that the bowls of God's wrath are going to come on the earth. So those that feel like, well, you know, we're not promised to escape persecution, no kidding. We're being persecuted today all over the world. We're suffering today all over the world as the body of Christ. There's people right now that are in prison right now because they're Christian, and that's the only reason they're in prison. But as far as the wrath of Almighty God coming on the earth like it did in Sodom and Gomorrah, like it did in Noah's day, where you're dealing with wrath coming down, when it comes to wrath from God coming on the earth, God has always made a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are not appointed to the wrath. Does that make sense? The end of the church age is going to move into the days of Jacob's trouble. Christ is going to first come as a thief for his bride that's being prepared now. But his second coming where his feet touch the Mount of Olives 
He's coming to a land and to a nation that will be prepared in the tribulation. See, right now the church is, is being prepared through the persecution and the suffering that we're going through in these last days. We're being forged. We're being refined like gold refined in the fire. We're, we're, we're going through a deep consecration and, and the washing of the water of the word and the purging fire of the Holy Ghost and the difficulty of this time that we're living with great evil. Like no other time, we have really got to seek God. I mean, we've really, and I'm not talking about persecution and suffering from the world. That's always been there. I'm talking about the onslaught of evil, the gross darkness that is thickening in the earth. Like no other time, the Bible talks about the last days being so evil that we're really having to, to humble ourselves and get close to Jesus. And the pressure of this time is preparing a bride. It's, it's separating those that are wheat and tares. It's, it's pulling apart the real and the fake. Those that are not really sold out, the Bible says they're going to fall away in the last days, and they are. We're seeing them, but the droves fall away. Those that are real are, are, are growing very powerfully in Christ. And, and what's happening is, is this is preparing a bride for Christ's coming. But once Christ comes like a thief in the night and snatches the bride, where it's a meeting in the air, then the, it focuses to a land and a group of people. And now the focus will be that land and that group of people being prepared for Jesus' physical coming there. Do you see the difference? And that will happen through the tribulation time. Halfway through the tribulation, it's interesting because once the Antichrist signs a peace treaty, whenever that happens, when that happens, that instant right there, Daniel saw that day and it begins what's known as the tribulation. It begins what the Bible calls the 70th week of Daniel. It's a seven-year period, but it begins at that peace treaty sign. Please follow me. It begins, it's like, it's like God was dealing with Israel. Christ came, that stopped, and there was this dispensation of grace. But it's like God once again turns to Israel. As soon as that peace treaty sign, man, it's going to just kick in the days of Jacob's trouble. And halfway through that, the Antichrist to the very guy that signed the peace treaty with him. Halfway through that tribulation is going to sit in the temple and declare himself to be God Almighty, demand their worship. He's going to set up an image, demand them to worship the image of him that can talk, by the way. And he's, he's going to demand their worship. And the Jews are going to be outraged. I'm going somewhere with this. Then the Antichrist is going to unleash his fury against the Jews. This is where I was going with this, so please hear this. The book of Daniel says that Satan and the Antichrist will try to change the set dates, the set appointed dates. They would try to change them. Satan knows his time is short, but they're literally going to try to change it. What's, what's Satan doing? Whenever Satan right now is sitting back and watching, and he knows the Bible, and he's watching all these prophecies be fulfilled, he's watching how the Jews have been gathered back to Israel. That's a major prophecy. And he knows that Jesus is going to come back to the Mount of Olives and go to that temple. So what Satan's trying to do is he's trying to defile that temple by putting the Antichrist there and and calling himself God. He's trying to defile that temple where Jesus won't want to come back to. He's also, through that, the Antichrist is going to release his military to slaughter the Jews 
And Satan's going to try to kill all the Jews and scatter them back out again in the earth, thinking we can change the set times. Jesus won't want to come back. There won't be anything for him to come back to. Do you see what I'm saying? Follow me. God brought the Jews back. Satan's going to try to rescatter them again. And it says in the Bible, it seems to indicate there's only going to be a third of the Jews left living. Why am I saying that? Because I want you to hear this scripture. Jesus said those days would be so bad that there would be no flesh survive. That's the whole world. No flesh. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. The elect there is the Jews. Okay, in context, it's the Jews. So Jesus, whenever he says he's going to come back to Israel, those Jews have been scattered And he says in the Bible he's going to send his angels to go regather the elect. That's what he's talking about. Does that make sense? People are using that to try to discredit the rapture, and it doesn't even have to do with what they're saying it has to do with. It has to do with how the Antichrist is trying to scatter the elect, try to scatter the Jews out of Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to send his angels to bring them back. I'm trying to confront some teaching that needs to be confronted. And the next thing is this. There's been some strange teaching that, well, if it wasn't understood back thousands of years ago, then it must not be true today. But the Bible says in Proverbs 4.18 that the path of the righteous grows brighter like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And 2 Peter 1.19 says, So we have this prophetic word made for sure, made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So you see that as we get closer to Jesus appearing, that there's going to be a progressive increase of revelation. There's going to be things that are understood now that have never been understood. One of them being the blood moons. I mean, how many ever understood that years ago? I never understood that. But now it seems like there's revelation that's being revealed to us in these last days because everything's got to be revealed. It's being increasingly revealed. So somebody takes a mentality, well, if the early church or thousands of years ago they didn't understand this or whatever, what does that prove about anything? We're going to understand a lot of things in these last days they didn't understand. They saw through a prophetic glass dimly in the last days. They saw things that they tried to articulate in words. Like Daniel said, people will go to and fro. He didn't see an airport, at least that I know of. But we can go into an airport now and see people going all over. We understood. We understand now what Daniel meant, but Daniel just saw it in part. This is one I want to close with right here is the Israel and the church connection. Did you know when God moves with the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, when God moves, he moves with Israel and the church, it's like a railroad track. When God moves really significantly and it turns, that railroad track turns, the other goes with it. When God moves powerfully with Israel, he's moving with the church and vice versa. I'm going to show you this. The reason why I'm showing you this is because of this reason. Between now and 2017, 
We're going to see blood moons. We're going to see a jubilee year. We're going to see that Shemitah year. There's a new sorrow cycle. All the stuff I've talked to you about, something is up with Israel. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen necessarily on the day of a blood moon. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody really does. But something significant is going to happen with Israel. And we know according to the Bible that Israel has to gain more land. They've got to build a temple. There's something up. With that said, could it be that we start seeing also some significant prophecies with the church as well. Let me show you what I mean. In 1901, a woman by the name of Agnes Osman was baptized in the Holy Spirit in Topeka, Kansas under Charles Parham's meetings, under his ministry. Up until this time, the baptism in the Holy Spirit in tongues were not in existence that we know of. This was like a second Pentecost Once again, the Holy Spirit's being poured out. And this culminated at the Azusa Street Revival. It came to its fullness. At the same time that God was moving in the church, rebirthing the church, giving the church another Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being poured out that was so radical and had an impact all over the world, at the same time there was a man by the name of Herzl that founded the Zionist movement in Switzerland and called for a Jewish homeland, and this began the restoration of the nation of Israel. Are you seeing that? It's like railroad tracks. As God was moving in the church, he was moving with Israel. Here's the next one. May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation. In the 40s, what marked the 40s and the 50s was some of the most incredible, powerful revivals, the latter rain movement, where you, you read about people like uh, William Branham, Oral Roberts, A.A. Allen, Jack Coe, all these people that raised up and they saw a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit of healings and miracles, signs, wonders, deliverances in the earth. And that was a great revival called the Latter Rain Revival. While Israel was becoming a nation, God is pouring out his spirit with signs and wonders. It's like a railroad track. God moved with the church, moved with Israel at the same time. It keeps turning and ebbing a flow. In June 14, 1967, Israel took Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Because in the 60s was the charismatic movement, the great charismatic revival. So while Israel is having people literally from all over the nations of the earth gather into Israel, and they took Jerusalem, while that major move of God's going on at that time, the charismatic revival was being poured out where the hippies and people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of churches you would have never thought were seeing revival. It was very similar in that respect. Israel was having people coming from all kinds of cultural backgrounds, different skin colors, all kinds of backgrounds. God was pouring out his spirit on all kinds of backgrounds in the charismatic revival. Once again, you see something very significant. Now watch this. 1994 to 96, Israel signed a historic peace treaty. This was a big deal. But the PLO, remember Yasser Arafat? The PLO abolished the sections of his charter calling for Israel's destruction. Now while that's going on, Israel's signing a peace treaty. You can see where this thing's going. What is the Antichrist going to do one day? He's going to sign a peace treaty. What's Israel looking for? They're looking for a savior. They're looking for somebody that can bring a peace treaty. While they're signing a peace treaty, um, God in 1994-96 began a major wave of revival. And please tune in to me because I need to give you some prophecies right here. A major wave of revival, historic revival. Israel signs this historic peace treaty. The church sees revival. Rodney Howard Brown's meetings broke out here in America. 
God poured out his spirit on a vineyard church in Toronto. God came down at Holy Trinity Brompton in England where Steve Hill was touched. God poured out his spirit in Sunderland. God poured out his spirit in Pensacola. And a, and a mighty visitation came to Smithton, Missouri, the Smithton Revival. That was one major wave of revival that swept the West and, of course, spread throughout the world. While Israel was signing that historic peace treaty, God was pouring out his spirit. Now, I share all that for this reason. Please tune in to me right now. Israel's something big is about to happen in Israel. I don't know what it is, but between now and 2017 time frame, something significant, whether they deal with Iran, they go to war, expand their borders, I don't know. Something big. Could it be that while God does something significant with Israel, that once again something significant happens in the church? Could it be? I don't know. But looking at this pattern, you have to wonder. Now let me, let me give you some prophecies. Could this be, I'm not prophesying because I don't know, but could it be the beginning of these prophecies? Where David Ruiz in 1994, and whenever revival broke out in Toronto, remember me showing you guys that video. David Ruiz, the power of God hits him. He begins to shake, he prophesied, and he said, this is nothing. What's going on here is nothing. He said, you just wait till what's coming. Then you have, in the Azusa Street Revival, a lot of people don't know this, but they prophesied. They said in 100 years from now, it's been 100 years. They said in 100 years from now, there's going to be another revival breakout like Azusa. And it said that it will be greater than Azusa, and it will not be confined to one place. Could it be what Dr. Cho saw? He saw it began in Pensacola, but spread all across America. Could it be what Ruth Ward Heflin saw? She saw all of America blaze in the fires of revival with Dallas as the hub. During the Toronto revival, as it was breaking out in the 90s, people prophesied even back then. They said, they said God is coming gently now so that when he comes in power in the future, it won't scare you. This is meant to prepare you. Think about that. I think it was Rick Joyner too saw like a wave and then a major wave after that. Could it be what people like Rodney Hart Brown and others that are true prophetic voices that we're on the verge of a third great awakening in America? I'm just wondering, could it be when God does something extremely significant in Israel, which will probably look really bad for Israel at first, but turn out in their favor, could it be while that's going on in Israel, the church begins to see the beginning of these prophecies start unfolding? Could it be? And if it is, I want to be right in the middle of it. Amen?